0: give you some common sense. Yes,
1: sir, they have the car stopped in jammed at the garage by
0: the fire. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone. Merry Christmas. Welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, 27-year veteran of the NYPD. You know, I was looking at um, some of the new information that's come, maybe not even new information, just new news coming from the broadcast media. And one of the big things right now is we know that this Everyone's getting impatient with this case because it, it is, it's a horrific murder that occurred on November 13th, right? So we're at 40, what was it, 42 days, um, and people are really getting impatient. And we're wondering, do the Moscow police, do they have enough help? Do they have the investigative know-how? to solve this case? Do they have the resources? Is the addition of the Idaho State Police investigators as well as the FBI enough to help solve this case? There's mistakes being made, every investigation, every police department, no matter how experienced your investigators are, mistakes are made. But do they need additional help, say from the outside? Uh, Steve Gonsalves, the father of Kaylee Gonsalves, has been saying from the beginning that he wanted to hire a private investigator. Is that a good idea in this case? What will private investigators do that law enforcement's not doing? Will they come up with information that law enforcement cannot come up with? Will people speak to private investigators that it may be intimidated by the police and won't give the police the information that they need. These are some of the questions we need to ask when even considering uh, bringing private investigators into this case. I'm going to give, before we go into playing some of um, Law and Crime Network, they interview a private investigator uh, on this case by the name of T.J. Ward. I'm going to tell you, I think it's a bad idea to bring private investigators, and then I'll tell you why. First of all, police do not work well with private investigators. They do not share information with them, nor should they be expected to. Private investigators, first of all, the first word tells you everything private. They're working privately, they're working for their client, who in this case could be Steve Consalves, and they're working sort of in a different direction than the police department. They're answering to one client. The police department has to answer for this entire investigation. A private investigator could could actually hurt the investigation. And I'm saying that with the knowledge I was the police for 27 years. We would never, when I was in Manhattan North Homicide Squad, when I was in the 2-3 Detective Squad, we would never, ever share information with a private investigator. Because we know many times private investigators are there to make the police look bad. And they're there not to try to solve this case because they're not going to have enough information to solve this case. The police are not going to share their investigative information, the forensic information, the crime scene information, the interview information, the direction of the investigation, other forensic information like cell phone. They're not going to share that with the private investigator or investigators. So what is the point? What is the private investigator going to do? If he's there just specifically to provide answers to the families of the victims, that's fine. But do not expect the private investigators to to help solve this case because they're not going to, because they're not going to have the information they're going to need that would, That would uh, assist them to know the direction that the real investigators, the real, I say the real because the police are the real investigators. On this case, the FBI is assisting the Idaho State Police. They're not going to share their information with the private investigators. Therefore, I think it's a bad idea. And I want to play a little bit of the Law and Crime Network. First, we want to see Chief Fry. And he's interviewed. And he seems like a hell of a nice guy, Chief Fry you know, but I don't see, uh, with all the police experience he has, I don't see it in his eyes that he has homicide investigative experience. In fact, I know he doesn't. So that doesn't give me a great deal of of confidence in them. But however, they're assisted by the Idaho State Police and the FBI. So we have to, we have to be patient and, and let them investigate this case. We can't, Again, bringing private investigators into this case, I think, will only hurt the case. I'm going to bring Chief Fry, uh, he's on the Law and Order Crime Network. I'm going to bring him into the broadcast right now and see what he has to say.
1: We have a lot of resources that we're utilizing, but we still ask for your help. We ask for any tips that you might have, anything that you might be able to give us.
2: Should one resource police use on the Moscow murder investigation include private investigators? I'm Anjanette Levy, and welcome to Law and Crime Sidebar Podcast. The idea of hiring a private investigator was first floated by Steve Gonsalves, the father of victim Katie Gonsalves. He was very frustrated with what he saw as a lack of progress in the investigation. You will recall that Kaylee and her roommates, Maddie Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Zana's boyfriend, Ethan Chapin, were all stabbed to death in the early morning hours of November 13th. It's been nearly six weeks since the homicides occurred. in that time, families have been pleading for information, but police have been keeping much of that information about the case from the public, which happens in criminal investigations. The family of Xana Carnol sent out flyers this week pleading for anyone with information to come forward.
0: We were talking about those flyers uh, from day one and On the NYPD, we would call those flyers, help us help you. I think this is a great idea. I think it keeps the case out there in the community. It keeps the case out there in the media. For some reason, uh, early on, whoever, the, the, the Moscow police, maybe the FBI advising them, the Idaho State Police, they advised against this. I think these flyers are a great idea. Look at all the information on there. Look at all the information that... It requests and look, it has the photographs of the four victims, which sometimes spurs people into action when they see the faces of the victims. It becomes real and it it gets them to, to perhaps make a call or, or you know, shake that tree out there and, and see who does have information. I think this should have been done day one. And for whatever reason, it wasn't. But that's that's a, a, an outstanding flyer. Uh, report any suspicious behavior and or individuals observed leading uh, up to and after this tragic crime. So they're asking for the community for help. And again, I thought this should have been done day one.
2: The Moscow Police Department has enlisted the help of both the Idaho State Police and the FBI to solve the case. So should some of that help come from private investigators? Joining me to discuss whether or not hiring a private investigator for these families to investigate the murders themselves is T.J. Ward. He is a private investigator. He's been in the business for 40 years. He has a website, tjwardpi.com, and is also the author of the new book, Guilt by Association. T.J., welcome to Sidebar. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. TJ, uh, you know, you're a former law enforcement officer. I'm sure as a law enforcement officer, you wouldn't want people digging around in your cases. I don't know that for sure. But what are your thoughts on this discussion, this idea about the family of Kaylee Gonsalves potentially, and I say potentially because we don't know if they've even done that, uh, hiring a private investigator to investigate these murders?
1: Well, uh, hiring a private investigator is probably an asset to the case. Because there's a lot of witnesses that we know that probably wouldn't want to talk to law enforcement. And
0: what they would do is talk to some. You know, I find that to be bullshit. And you know something? Of course, he's going to sell private investigators because he is a private investigator. He's been doing it for 40 years. How long ago was he in law enforcement? How long was he in law enforcement? Of course, he wants them to talk to private investigators. And I don't believe that. People are going to talk to him and not to law enforcement. I did just total, total nonsense here for the truth. Thank you so much for the 199 super chat. Uh, we need this case solved. I can't sleep. You're absolutely right here for the truth. Let me play more of um, TJ Ward here and hear what he has to say on behalf of private investigator business
1: somebody that's not associated with law enforcement. And we can gather information, probably law enforcement would get, and we would build a case for them and turn it over to law enforcement.
2: When you were in law enforcement um, with Fulton County, would you have wanted a private investigator talking to witnesses uh, for you or running a parallel investigation? Would you, would you have not liked that? Or what would your feelings have been about that?
1: I I don't have a problem with a private investigator working a parallel investigation as long as they don't get into areas that might hurt the case or or do something that may not be proper that we couldn't use in a court of law later on. And with my experience as a former law enforcement officer, I know what my boundaries are to be able to utilize information and get information for law enforcement to be able to use.
0: Does anyone actually believe that? Does anyone actually believe that he knows his boundaries? That he knows what he can ask and what he can't ask? I certainly don't. And I think that running a parallel investigation is is bad business. It's bad investigative um, tactics. If he wants to gather information for the families or for Steve Gonçalves, that's fine. But he shouldn't be interviewing the, the the primary witnesses in this case, that should be left to law enforcement. That can hurt the case. It can destroy the case, really. And that, the fact that he's saying that is just, it's so thinly veiled. You know, oh, yes, let's hire a private investor. As I said, if the family wants him to work and find out and, or be a liaison with the law enforcement who probably won't talk to him anyway, th- then so be it, but... For him to say that, oh yes, I know the boundaries. Oh, you really do you? Do you really know the boundaries? I don't think you do. And uh let's continue, play a little more of this and see what else he has to say.
2: One thing that I thought you said was very interesting is the fact that there are probably witnesses in this case who may not feel comfortable talking to law enforcement, however, they may be more comfortable talking to someone who's not a sworn officer. Uh, They may feel like they can be more candid. Have you experienced that in your investigations?
1: Absolutely. That has happened before. And we we build our cases. Um, I I build cases. I get hired by lawyers and private individuals and companies to build a case where it would be theft or, or whatever. And I turn my investigations over to law enforcement as a professional in court from what information I found and 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 uh, utilized in the case very important and there again there are a lot of people that do not like to talk to, to the police I mean, that the police are the authority. that scares them when they may be a, a potential witness where they don't want it, But talking to a private visible as myself, as a private investigator, they're um, a little bit more comfortable talking.
2: I think one of the reasons for that is because, you know, talking to a law enforcement officer, you could get jammed up. I, I mean, we've, we've heard stories about this where uh, they have arrest powers. Do so, you know the police have left power? And I'm sure the officers in this case want to get it right. They want to get the right person. So is that one of the reasons why people don't always feel comfortable talking to law enforcement?
1: That's correct. And it's just the authority that they have and the power that they have, as you mentioned. Um, Law enforcement is a little bit different category, what they're looking for. And people are scared that they're going to get incorporated into a case that they don't want to get incorporated to, but they'd like to share what they know it's the same way that they find cameras or, or find vehicles or identify something that they don't want anybody else to know, um, especially in this case And I know that they're looking for vehicles right now. Someone may come forth and feel comfortable talking to a private investigator and giving them information that I'm going to share with law enforcement. And anything that we get, we, we have a protocol to know if there's law enforcement, anything we pile information we're going to give to them. And we don't take... We don't take things in our own hands and, and go above and beyond what law enforcement would do. We turn it over to them.
0: I don't believe that, folks. I don't trust private investigators. Everything he's saying is self-serving. And, you know, T.J. Ward may be a fine man. He may be a fine private investigator, but I'm talking about the profession itself. They don't belong digging their mitts into an active quadrupled murder and no one's going to give them smoking gun information. Believe me. And if, they're, if they're going to interview witnesses, they're going to re-interview witnesses probably that have already been interviewed, you know, and the big difference between the police and private investigators is who their loyalty is to the police, the loyalty is to the, to the victims, to the victims' families. To the private investigator, his loyalty is to his client, whoever that may be, whoever hires him, whoever's paying his his fee. And there's nothing wrong with the the profession, but I just don't think that they're going to work well along with law enforcement. I'm telling you, in my experience, we would never, in the NYPD, Homicide, Detective Squad, we would never talk to a private investigator about an active case. We just wouldn't. If they came up and gave us this song and dance, we'd say, sir, listen, we respect you. We respect your service in law enforcement. We respect you as an investigator in your profession, but we're not sharing information with you. If you find out anything pertinent you wanna give us a call, give us a call. You're very welcome to do that, but we're not sharing our investigative information with you. And that I think that's done across the board. I can't see any police department including the Idaho Police Department, the Moscow Police Department, they're not going to share their information with a private investigator. It's just, it's just not going to happen.
1: Um, which builds a relationship with us and law enforcement to know that we're credible.
2: You mentioned the search for the white Hyundai Elantra. We know earlier this week that one of those white Hyundai Elantras, one of the 22,000 that police are combing through, registrations and things like that, Um, was ruled out uh, in Eugene, Oregon. There was one found on a street corner there. It had been involved in a vehicle accident a couple of days before. It was sitting there with front-end damage, no license plates. It certainly looked suspicious. They looked into it. They ruled it out, even though that vehicle is in the range of uh, vehicles that they want to look at, 2011 to 2013. How daunting of a task is that, to go through now 21,999 uh, vehicles that you have remaining to try to piece together who may have been in that area that night?
1: Well, what they have to do is going through 21,999 now is one thing they have, they got the Department of Motor Vehicles that can level down. That's how they come up with a number and, and be able to go through and see who these people might be. Or if a name comes up that, they find that matches something that they've got from a witness at the at the, the crime scene or somebody's a witness in this case and try to match it up with somebody and talk to somebody that owns that vehicle it's unfortunate that they don't have a tag number or a VIN number from what they found and again now their problem is, vehicles. the weather is hampering them unbelievably up there with the snow and ice and, and the bad weather. So it's going to slow this investigator down, and hopefully it doesn't become a cold case.
2: You've been in this business a long time, a PI for 40 years. Before that, a law enforcement officer, a sworn officer. From the outside looking in, and we kn- we don't know everything that they're doing, of course, but we know that they've got the Moscow PD working on this with the assistance of the FBI and the Idaho State Police. Uh, from what we know about what they're doing, we've been told they're using every available resource uh, to look into this. They're combing through the video. They're combing through tips. They have about 15,000 tips now that they have to wade through, which is unbelievable to me. What is your assessment of what's going on with this investigation?
1: Well, I don't say the problem, but the the FBI is well known that they're not going to release any information until they have diehard information they go public with. So we really don't know what they have. I mean, it's in a very uh, complicated crime scene, and there's things in that crime scene that can lead them to where they are to go to the outside. And again, um, there are rings, bringing more FBI agents in, I understand, that are an expertise in, in these type of cases, and um, to be able to utilize. So, again, we don't know what they have or what they don't have, but we have to move forward to keep gathering information. And I think it's real important that this case stays active in the media because there may be somebody that remembers something or sees what's on TV that might be an asset to them, and they come to us as a part of an investigator and if there's one involved in, in that location up there, or if they end up calling us, because I know they're trying to raise money, um, to hire a private investigator. And again, as I uh, spoke earlier this week, we have two former homicide investigators that work with us, and I would be more than happy to send them there to work hands-on with law enforcement and to help, help gather information, as again, anything that we learn, if we were working on the case, we would immediately turn it over to law enforcement. to.
0: Well, folks, everything he's saying, uh, the police are not going to let a private investigator share information. They're not going to let them join the investigation. Uh, What he's saying is self-serving for his business. And I don't doubt maybe he's a great investigator. Who knows? But uh, I don't think that um, this is the way to solve the case. When they were talking also about um, that, that white Hyundai Elantra. Now, I think they first said there was 22,000 of them registered within the vicinity of Moscow, but there are ways to narrow that field down. All right. There are definite ways to narrow the field down. Again, using investigators from the department of motor vehicle, in the NYPD we had some database called the lawman search, and we could find out what vehicles are in a specific area I don't know how many um, license plate readers they have in Moscow, Idaho, uh, toll booths, toll booth cameras, red light cameras, speed cameras—all those type of things can be utilized. It doesn't; it narrows it down. It doesn't make the investigation all that much easier. This is not an easy investigation by no means. This is a very complicated investigation. And what we were counting on, we talked about it from the beginning, is that science is going to solve this case. The forensic evidence is going to solve this case. And as of now, it's been very tight-lipped. We don't know the medical examiner's reports haven't come back yet. The toxicology hasn't come back yet. So all of those things are so, so important in this case and in solving this case. And and that's what... Uh, what we're all counting on, we're definitely all counting on this, um, the forensic evidence coming back and, and helping to, to solve this case. And as of right now, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, it hasn't come back. And DNA, I spoke to um, Ed Wallace, uh, NYPD, first grade detective in the crime scene and Barbara Butcher who was the former um, chief of staff of the New York city office of the chief medical examiner, two of the best death investigators probably in the United States. And I asked them, what is the chance of the, the killer's DNA being in in that crime scene percentage wise. And they basically said there's like a 99% chance of the killer's DNA being in that crime scene. So then why hasn't it been identified yet? That's the question we're asking right now. Why has the killer's DNA not been identified? And we've spoken about that many times. If the killer cut himself, his blood could be commingled with the victim's blood, and then they have to identify his blood. And if they identify a DNA that is not identified, they would submit it to CODIS the Combined DNA Index System, which is run by the FBI. The two types of DNA in that system are offender DNA, which is DNA taken from anyone arrested for a felony and certain misdemeanors. And then there's also forensic DNA, which is DNA that's unidentified DNA that's in CODIS. This killer of these four students He could have DNA that's not identified, that's not in CODIS. Therefore, it makes it that much more difficult uh, to identify his DNA. Uh, I'm going to play another piece of a video here. Let's get this on the screen.
3: on the murder of four students at the university of idaho. now to new details on the murder of four students at the university of idaho the campus is shutting down for the holidays with the killer still on the loose and we're getting a new look at the so-called party house where the victims lived and hearing from one student who once lived there andrew dimbert has the latest good morning to you andrew Good morning, Will. So we're getting some new insight into that gruesome crime scene and the house where the murders took place. We're now learning that police spoke with one of the victims on the phone about two months before the killings as part of a noise complaint. This morning, as authorities search for the killer of four University of Idaho students, newly surfaced body cam footage showing a police-involved incident at their home two months before they were killed. No one that lives here, is here right now. So where'd they go? They're just not here. I have no clue where they went. No clue. Authorities seen responding to a noise complaint in September, greeted by people who didn't live at the house. Officers then speaking with Maddie Mogan, one of the victims, by phone, who along with the other residents was not there at the time. What's your first name? Maddie?
1: It could be. Maybe, maybe.
2: And
3: how do you spell that, Maddie? My like, legal name is Madison. It's M-A-D-I-S-O-N. The video showing how many outsiders were able to access the property, And as the mystery grows over how the killer was able to get away unnoticed, a former student who graduated in 2022 and lived at the same house during his junior year talks about his experience there.
4: It's definitely an old creaky house. You can't walk up any of the stairs or on any of the floors without everybody in the house knowing it.
3: Cole Alternator says the building doesn't offer much privacy and was well known to students.
4: A lot of students um, are very familiar with the inside of the home. Around the community, there have been thousands of people that have likely been through it throughout the years. Even when we had it, there were people that would come and knock on the door or walk in thinking that it was somebody else's house.
3: Now, as the school closes for winter break, the house and camp is quiet, but police say their search for the killer will not slow down.
1: We're going to continue to push through the holidays. Um, we have a team that uh, will continue to do the investigation and work on that um, as we uh, move through the holidays.
3: As the investigation continues and still no suspects named, police are apparently looking for a white car seen near the house the night of the killings. At the very least, authorities believe the people inside the car may have important information about this still unsolved quadruple homicide with. All right, Andrew, thank you.
0: So, folks, that's a little bit um, concerning right there. The fact that this was a party central house, right here in September no one that lived there was, was was on the scene but yet there was a big party being thrown in the house like what's that all about And so we also understand because of that how much unidentified fingerprints and dna exist inside that house i don't even think you can count how much because it, again it, it was it, it's a party house it's a party house and they had this this one night where, uh, this, this one night that they had a party and none of the kids that lived there were even home. So what does that tell you? What does that tell you about that crime scene? What does that tell you about a potential bad actor having gone into that house and knows the inside of that house, what it looks like? knows the whole layout of the house, had maybe been in that house numerous times. So that's what we're talking about. That exacerbates the situation for law enforcement and makes the investigation that much more difficult for the police. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime stories from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube Hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. If you want to contribute to us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. We also have a YouTube channel membership with five different levels. And you see the folks with the green font in the chat. They're part of our YouTube family, and uh, we've had some great supporters over this past year. Um, You see some of the folks in the chat saying, yes, we just reached 40,000 subscribers. I'm proud of that. I've worked hard at it. I'll go uh, slow and steady, uh, because I do uh, do shows that are ethically correct in my way. Uh, I don't want to do sensational things. I don't put stuff out there unless I can verify it. I don't have sensational uh, guests. I don't do what ifs that are sensational. I try to stick with the facts and and really educate the listeners and the public as to how real investigations are run and what should be going on right now. And sometimes when things are going on, uh, what shouldn't be done? Are the police making certain mistakes? And we're not here to bash the police, but we also are not afraid when necessary to level criticisms at things that we see being done that we think are incorrect and not being done the way by procedure, the way they should be done. So we do it from a real police perspective. Uh, We have a lot of retired law enforcement that come on this show. And we think we do a good job and our audience supports us. Now, um, you know, there's a lot of conjecture out there. I mean, I've seen more, I call them talking heads, (laughs) more talking heads out there, uh, FBI, all kinds of people conjecturing on what, is happening. Cindy Wigglesworth, I love you, Bill, but what the hell are you doing here when your family is with you? Not that I don't love this. <laughs> well, we all went out to dinner tonight, my family and I. We had a, an amazing dinner. Everyone's tired. They went to bed, and I said, you know something? I got to talk to my subscribers and fans, and some new information came out on this on this uh, horrific quadruple murder, and I wanted to uh, come on the air. So, there's my answer. And that's, uh, I love doing this and I love, uh, reporting on new information. So Cindy Wigglesworth, that's my answer. Thank you so much for the $10 super chat. Um, so guys we've hear from a lot of people, the, uh, FBI, of course, is famous with the behavioral analysis and the behavioral analysts talking about who is this perpetrator. And that's very important. Who is this guy? And then when we say guy, people say how do you know it's a guy? It's like a 90% chance this is a male. You know, 80% of the murders in this country are done by males. And when you put all the statistics together for a murder like this, it reaches like 90% chance that it's a male. But what are the things that people should be what should they be looking for in their community to spot someone? that may be exhibiting behavior of someone that could have this person, whoever this person is, is what's known as a mass killer. Uh, Whether or not, you know, there are some out there that say he could be a serial killer that has been yet to be determined. Most think this is, this was done, not done by a serial killer, but, by the uh what he did killing four people in one incident he is definitely a a mass killer so what would this person's behavior be like within a community what would his personality be like where does he live does he live alone does he live with his family is he married what is he like socially what kind of behavior would he be exhibiting after this horrific crime, would he show signs that he committed this horrific crime, or would he just go about his business as if nothing happened? These are some of the answers that, you know, everyone, of course, wants to know. These are some of the questions, of course, that no one does know. But the behavioral analysts and some psychologists that have been on some of these shows, some of them were very good, actually. And, um, Some of them painted a picture of what this person could be like and what people could maybe observe in their community. Ashley Banfield talked a little bit about this the other night. I'm going to play a little bit of this.
5: They insert themselves like that very often into crime scenes. Do they revel in this? And how would police tell the difference between a killer and a crime tourist? And are they watching now? I want to bring in Chris Swecker. He's a former assistant director of the FBI Criminal Investigations Unit. So what about that, um, Chris? It's sort of a new thing that we're starting to see a lot more crime tourism, people coming to these locations than maybe they used to. It's not that it's new. It's just becoming very popular. Do the police stake out and watch carefully to see who are the tourists and who has, you know, maybe a different behavior?
4: Yeah, I think they should, actually. I. I I don't see any that they're doing that in this case. I, what I have read and heard is that there's a, a private security guard sitting in a car in front of the you know, in front of the door there, and you see that on a lot of the video footage of of the crime scene. You know that are, that are more current. I don't see any other, and I don't think they have the resources to st- stake out the uh, the house and the premises 24/7. I just I don't think it's practical. And I just don't think they have the resources to do it, but they should be videoing. All you have to do is to put a camera up and and you can video everyone who comes and goes every, around the whole perimeter of the house. It wouldn't take more than two or three cameras to do that. But, you know, yeah, and, and but you know of-
5: what? They did that at Brian Laundrie's house. They did that. They did it from the neighbor, from the back. They put up a camera to see if anybody came in and out the back. I think they were looking to see if Brian himself was going to come in or, or leave, but they've done it. So you're right. And can I just ask you, what would they be looking for? I, I have no idea what kind of signs we'd be talking about. What would the behaviors be of a crime tourist that might actually be the killer?
4: Yeah, I, I don't know. You know uh, the behavioral scientists would would be the best to answer that question. But I would say it's probably someone who's by themselves and and someone who's male and who, who doesn't fit in, you know, to the neighborhood, if you will. It's someone who is a loner and you can you can tell from, from a distance that this is someone who's not, you know, not accompanied by others and maybe lingers longer than they should. But, I, you know, as I, I keep seeing evidence of the lack of sophistication of this police department over and over again, and I think the lack of of uh, con- conducting that type of surveillance via cameras or what have you is just another indication. I think one of the biggest problems here is they, they never, they didn't expand the crime scene out to cover the area behind the house early enough. I think that place was conducive to footprints, a lot of snow or there was snow and mud in the area. And I, I, I saw that they had not roped that off until two or three days after the, the crime itself.
5: I'm glad you mentioned that because our Brian Enton actually went back there to see if there was an egress from the back of the house, that porch that you see under the, under the, uh, support beams. And there was, there was a whole path that wound up through those woods and up to the neighborhood above. We're going to take you on that path, um, a little bit later in the show. So if our viewers are wondering what it looks like if you were the killer running out the back and through the woods, we're going to actually show you, uh, Brian, Brian's piece is going to run a little bit later. So, Chris, I do have this question about, um, you know what, what? On earth would a killer be thinking coming back to to the crime scene? I would imagine it'd be quite thrilling to, to think you can hold one over on everybody and be right there in plain sight. But I also wonder if there's a latency to it. Would they wait a particular period of time, a, a longer period of time, and come back when maybe the the coast was clear to to get that thrill with a little less danger?
4: It's it's not unusual, I would say, with with thrill killers. Ted Bundy is is
0: the worst example of. You know, folks, what, 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 they're, what they're referring to is this is an attribute that serial killers display. They sometimes go back to the place, the location that they committed the murder because they get a thrill out of it. It's almost synonymous with serial killers taking what's called a, a souvenir or a trophy. Uh, that they can keep with them, and it reminds them of the thrill they had uh, committing the murder. And this is what they're referring to right now, but I don't know if this is really uh, something you would see in a mass killer. I know this is an attribute of a serial killer, but would someone that killed people, and if this was his first time doing this, would he go back to the scene to relive the thrill of this is, or would he never show up again? But this is what Ashley Banfield's referring to, and this former FBI agent is speaking about
4: that. And there, there have been many other examples of the killer coming back at some point to to the crime scene. Sometimes he, in 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 some bizarre circumstances, and Bundy again is another example to the body that they that they had dumped somewhere. In a remote location, they just went back and just—I uh, hate to describe it like this—but surveyed their handiwork. They, that's the—that's the thrill killer. That's the killer that has the impulse and is sick enough to to conduct this type of killing to begin with. You know, this is—I I really think this is someone very, very similar to Ted Bundy's psyche in this case because I—I I don't think this is someone fascinating that's from the and frightening.
5: You know, yeah, it it, so in that respect, um, there's crime scene tape still up. If the crime tourists respect the crime scene tapes on the outside, is it any impediment to the investigation?
4: I don't think so. As long as as long as that crime scene tape, you know, that the crime scene itself has been um, fully exploited, if you will, that they've they've conducted all the forensics, all the, the searches in the perimeter of that that curtilage of that house that they need to do and as long as they stay outside the crime scene tape. It's
5: fascinating stuff. Thank you for watching.
0: So folks, I happen to agree with him when he speaks about the uh the crime scene and the fact that early on they they really didn't expand the crime scene enough. They it, the crime scene should have been much larger, extending way beyond the curtilage of the house because you can always make it smaller. But once you define the parameters and the perimeter of a crime scene, you really can't move it out after that because the area around that has already been contaminated. The, and it's a twofold situation. Not only does it allow the crime scene to be much further, but it also keeps gawkers and would be, you know, amateur investigators, from impeding on the crime scene and, you know, interfering with law enforcement's work. And that's happened in this case. Um, and, you know, it, it's happened more than once. And it gets, it gets ugly when that happens because Cindy Wigglesworth, I forgot to tell you my favorite is you in the afternoon live in your backyard. Thank you, Cindy. And thank you to, for the $5 super chat. Um, guys, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed, go on on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up. Selena Palfrey, thank you for the two night, uh, super chat. Very much appreciated. Um, so guys, Merry! I just want to say also Merry Christmas to everyone. It's rare that, uh, coming on the holidays. Well, actually came on twice today, earlier in the day, I did, uh, an outdoor broadcast coffee with Canon and, um, we uh, spoke for a little bit. If you hadn't heard, I'm down here in Jupiter, Florida, where today it was a balmy 41 degrees. (laughs) You may not think that's that cold. And when you're in other parts of, um, of the U S the Northeast right now is getting horrifically cold temperatures. Um, where I went to college, Buffalo state, Buffalo is like under blanketed with snow and cold and, uh, To the point it's dangerous in those areas where it gets that cold. But people in Buffalo, keep your head up. I know you will because people in Buffalo are amazing people. And uh, I really have a lot of faith that they'll get through this storm. No Name Jane, thank you for the $10 super sticker. Very much appreciated. Welcoming all my new subscribers, all my new fans. It's great to see you guys. Hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas. Uh, We still have the holidays still sort of keep dragging on, I don't know if dragging on is a good word, but till we get to New Year's Eve and then New Year's Day, and then we start our new year, you know, we start our new year. So when we think of this case, guys, there's just no way on earth that anything but solving this case can happen. It it must, must, must be solved, this case. Uh, We can't think that uh it, it's it's an option to not solve it uh I gotta know thank you for the 99 cent super sticker very much appreciated and it it has every every resource they talk about um running out of resources and uh, that should never happen in this case because they should get all the resources that they possibly need in this case, Uh, all the money they they need, the FBI, the help from other law enforcement agencies, it should not be an option uh, to run out of resources or run out of money. You heard the FBI agents saying they should put up cameras. They have a private security guard, guard, guard guarding that crime scene. That's ridiculous. You know, it should be 24-7 around the clock, a uniformed police officer, not a security guard. That's a crime scene, you know, Uh, and the crime scene of a quadruple murder. Uh, You're going to really have a security guard watching it? I just, you know, some of the questions we also have is is during the week, we saw saw some unidentified law. It appeared to be law enforcement um, entering the crime scene. And we didn't know who they were, and that raised a lot of questions, uh, 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 a ton of questions. Uh, And that doesn't help the investigation. Doesn't help the questions that people have. Oh, who are these guys? Why are they going into the crime scene? How about in the future, a defense attorney playing that video and saying, "This is on this date. Why were these people going into the crime scene? Who are they? Did they sign?" The, um, the crime scene log, did, did why were they going into the crime scene? What was their purpose? Was the crime scene closed? Those are the questions we have.
6: And, and yet again, we're looking at Uber driver who did say nothing suspicious, nothing happened that night. But, but wondering why he wasn't questioned earlier by police. Is this yet sort of another instance, perhaps, of something slipping through the cracks, an investigation that isn't quite going um, the way that we would hope it would?
7: You know, look, it's always easy to be sort of a Monday morning quarterback, right? You know, I faced that when I worked counterterrorism on the day of September 11th um, at the CIA. Of course, everyone's critical about what you did or didn't do, but I do think here, these are just regular investigative steps um, that probably should have been taken that don't take really the FBI or other law enforcement organizations to come in. Those are things that you should know to do. You know, seizing uh, CCTV, asking that it not be recorded over immediately. Things like looking at their apps, looking at who took them home, that really should have been honed in on um, right away. So I do think that that is probably a step uh, that law enforcement missed. And I know that, you know, the Uber driver said that their behavior was, I guess, unremarkable. And that is remarkable in and of itself. That is important to
0: know. Um, and I, I, well, What she's referring to is the, the, the night of the murder when the girls uh, got a ride home from the food truck. And it was uh, an Uber driver. And he was, was an interview to just very recently. And that doesn't give folks a lot of faith in the investigation when this person wasn't interviewed till, you know, four or five weeks later. Uh, It gives us pause as to what the hell's going on. Why was he not interviewed much earlier?
7: I really just think, though, I think on the flip side of that, the fact that they still have not released the crime scene. uh um, after six weeks is is interesting to me and in in a way i'm actually glad uh, that they haven't that they're taking their time to go through that I know that's frustrating to some people, I have never worked a crime scene that's been held for six weeks that's a really long time, however, um, you know just a few days ago we saw people going in and out with what looked to me um, like evidence retrieval boxes, and so I think that that's really important that they have done that, and some, I think. Within protocol um, and other things not within protocol.
6: Interesting, and and you mentioned, you know, it is remarkable that uh, there was that there was nothing remarkable that night. That the girls seemed to be behaving normally. In your investigator's mind, what is remarkable? Remarkable about that? What can we infer?
7: So there's a couple things that I would infer for that. First, the girls didn't think that they were in danger. They had had no interact. That evening, wherever they were, whether it was a bar, the food truck, walking around downtown, all the places that we've seen them, they had no reason to believe um, that their lives were in danger and that they had crossed paths with anyone who made them feel in danger. And so I think that's important in that potentially, I'm not saying that it will, but potentially it could rule out anyone that they would have come into contact with that night um, and potential. So I think that is a critical piece i think also what this may tell us is that you know the suspect either entered in um after they were already in the the house or perhaps was laying in wait inside the house so this was someone that may have been known to them but not someone that they perhaps came into contact that gave them sort of a a feeling of danger that evening really appreciate
6: that thank you and we just heard from our reporter alex capriello now a professor at university of idaho uh, that TikTok user who accused her of the killings on campus. Do you believe that the internet sleuths
7: had taken too far? In this case, I do, um, and I'm sorry to be so harsh and, and blunt about that. But the reality is, is the internet lives forever. Whether or not this professor is, is clear she will always have this when people search her name, and that is incredibly damaging um, to her um, and to her potential career path. And so, I think we need to be very, very careful when when naming names. And I think also this takes police focus perhaps off of this investigation. Right now it looks to me like this is a civil um, lawsuit but if they forward with criminal charges, you are now asking Moscow PD to investigate this as well as the murders of, of these four victims. And so I think really you're you're tying the hands of law enforcement in doing this and you are potentially um, damaging this person's career forever. You may have feelings um, about who you think the murderer may be, it's okay. Um, but we can't put that out there without evidence, without an indictment in a space that will will live on forever.
6: I appreciate that. And it's true, the internet has such a long message is there anything officials or law enforcement can do about the spread of misinformation or accusations online, or is it incumbent upon people like this professor to defend their own reputation?
0: You know, what law enforcement can do about the spread of misinformation online is to try to get out their own pertinent information. And that's a big part of homicide investigation, is to use the press, use the press to get out information you want out there. I'm not saying you put out secret information that you don't want out there, but I'm talking about information that will quell rumors. Uh, Selena Palfrey, thank you for the 549 super sticker. Very much appreciated. They need to put out information that counters some of these rumors. When people on the internet name folks as suspects, that can destroy these people's lives. That's not okay. And I think when people do that, uh, law enforcement has to get out there, get their message out there and say, we're aware of this person, we spoke to that person, and this person is not a suspect. Uh, they could say that, even if the person is, to, to relieve that person of this public tag they're going to have on them, and it also endangering their lives. And When someone, a content creator on YouTube, points a finger at someone and says, oh, this person is he's a person of interest. This is a suspect. That endangers that person. That puts a target on that person's back. And without any information, you know, the police need something called probable cause to arrest somebody. And if they don't have that, they can't arrest somebody. So, but when a content creator on YouTube points at someone as, oh, this person is a suspect... And and in the case of this professor, horrendous, horrific, you know, and she's hitting back. She's going to defend herself.
7: That is an excellent question. I think it's really hard to me. The Internet is like this tip of data, right? You know, it's really, really hard to warn Internet sleuths. And, you know, one of the things that they can do to to make it be taken more seriously is press charges against this person um, who who is basically naming this professor by name. But again, you run the risk of-
0: You know, you're right. Someone just corrected me on, in the chat that this wasn't on YouTube. It was on TikTok. So I should just cover myself by saying on social media. Uh, there's a lot of social media besides YouTube that can be also be very damaging. Yeah, this was on TikTok. Uh, wherever someone points a finger at somebody, it could potentially put their life in danger and that's that's not okay.
7: Now you are deflecting from this active murder investigation to pursue these criminal charges. So criminal charges are one thing that you can to can do to deter this type of behavior. Um however, I do think that the onus is upon people um to not be engaging in in this type of very specific behavior. It's okay to 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 think about what you think could have been missed or what you think could have happened, but it's not okay to, to name names without any kind of criminal indictment.
6: Thank you for watching. Go to newsnationnow.com to find.
0: Gordon Jackson. Thank you so much for the 1999 super chat. Hope all are safe and warm. Topic at dinner was what, if any parameters are for the Hyundai tip line as is it's vague. There hasn't been like West of Nashville, only at, window decals. They must be getting millions of calls. Gordon Jackson, you're 100% right. Uh, Finding this car is somewhat of a needle in a haystack. Unless it was a car that was around this area all the time, and unless they can pull up certain cars that were in And, and, you know, if if this is the perpetrator's car, don't you think at some point he would have Cleaned out this car, or torched the car, or got rid of the car. I think that's a good possibility. Someone said in the chat that the uh, the driver of that drove the girls home the night of the, um, of the uh, murder was interviewed early on by the police. If that's true, and it may very well be, I I apologize. I just I I believe they may have interviewed him, but the information wasn't out there. Therefore, this story ran like it was brand new information. What has to be done in this case is uh, we talked about it very early on in the case is the messaging, the messaging has to be better. Uh, you've got to get the message out there. And as I said, a, a million times, uh, myself and also with Phil and Mike Geary is that the police department needs the press. It needs the press to both keep this story alive, and to put the message out there, that's going to help in this investigation. So they they got to keep using the, uh, using the press to, to help in this case. Because, again, this case, you know, people, the, the biggest thing people are afraid of uh, is that this case goes cold. I don't see this case going cold. It's too much of an important case. It's a case that needs to be out there, and it's a case that it just cannot go cold it you gotta keep working this case there's got there's there's so much evidence in this case, and that is what we we're all praying is gonna is gonna solve this case that's what's what's gonna what's gonna lead to the arrest of the perp in this case.
2: I'm Anginette Levy, and thanks so much for joining us here on Law & Crime. We've been working to bring you any new information on the murders of four students at the University of Idaho. Now we are hearing for the first time from the driver who took Kaylee Gonsalves and Maddie Mogan home that evening. He spoke to the Daily Mail exclusively and did so as long as they agreed not to identify him. This driver said, it's not lost on me that my job was to get these girls home safe, but that didn't really help this time. He went on to say, I had known Kaylee and Maddie and Zanna too. They would occasionally get rides home and there was nothing out of the ordinary about that night. You will recall that Kaylee Gonsalves, Maddie Mogan, Zanna Carnodal, and Ethan Chapin were all found stabbed to death in that home on King Road near the campus of the University of Idaho. There is no suspect at this time, and to our knowledge, the police have not recovered a murder weapon. This driver went on to say they weren't upset about anything or talking about anyone. There was no apprehension, no weird feelings there, no upsetness. There was no nervousness about them. They weren't afraid of anybody. There was nobody following them or following us. There was absolutely nothing about that ride that was different or abnormal. They were just typical sorority girls talking away, and half the time, They don't pay a whole lot of attention to us drivers. We're just kind of there doing our own thing. This driver picked up Maddie and Kaylee downtown in Moscow after they had left the Corner Club bar. He said that he picked them up at between 140 and five or so. They had their food with them. They were excited about eating mac and cheese, he said. He dropped them off in front of the home, but he said he didn't watch them go in. It was only a day later or so uh, on Monday the day after the homicides, that he realized he had been in that neighborhood when he heard about it. And then when he saw who the victims were, he realized he had taken Maddie and Kaylee home that evening. He said he immediately went to police and explained why he had had this interaction with them, produced a receipt showing he had gone to a Taco Bell after dropping them off, and he said that he was cleared. He also said that people in the community are living in fear and want to get more information from law enforcement. Anyone with information about this case is asked to reach out to the Moscow Police
1: Department. They are being assisted by the FBI and Idaho State Police.
0: So, folks, the police may have had that early on in the investigation. However, it was really the first time we heard a, uh, I'm not saying on this show, but the first time we heard a uh, in-depth interview as in regards to what actually had happened. You know, folks, this is a unique case. Again, the community uh, is terrified because there is a killer out there whether he lives in the Moscow community is yet to be determined. But you can understand why this case 100% needs to be solved. They cannot put this on the back burner. They cannot let this case go cold. This case is so important, both to the families and to the, the Moscow, Idaho community. There's so many different issues um, angles to take this case from. But I think the most important way that this case is going to be solved is through, and I said it a million times, ad nauseam is through science, through forensic evidence. And that's what we're all waiting on. We're, the, the folks that are formal law enforcement, we're counting on the forensic scientists to come up with the piece of evidence that is going to solve this case. And uh, I have confidence that that's gonna happen. We have the Ed Wallaces out there, the Barbara Butchers, the scientists that every once in a while in a murder case, they come up with the that smoking gun piece of evidence that's gonna identify the perpetrator in this case. Folks, uh, that's about all I have for you tonight. I want to... Um, Oh, actually, I do have one one other thing. Um, uh, I just want to read this commercial here. Joe Murray, uh, if you need an attorney in the New York City metropolitan area, Joe Murray is your man. Joe's a retired NYPD police officer who's an outstanding defense attorney. You can call Joe on his cell at 718-514-3855 email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. And he has a website, jmurray-law.com. And he's a big uh, supporter of police off the cuff. Folks, we're going to stay on this case till it's solved. And when we come up with new information, uh, we're going to bring it to you. You know, a lot of folks in the chat and um, that have been following this case they get upset maybe that we come up and we repeat information and we uh, try to come up with new information, but we can't invent information and we sort of drill it into our audience of what we know and what uh, law enforcement should be doing. And we want to um, stay with this case and, and bring you the best information we can from a police perspective. Guys have a Merry Christmas. Uh, Hopefully a happy and healthy new year and God bless. Have a great night.